Chelsea fans, welcome back to another edition of the Lab for Matthew Harnstand podcast. I'm your host, Shane Holcomb. Thomas Tuchelside traveled down to rainy Manchester on Saturday evening, came out with a 2-1 to one pulling grab, smashing grab, whatever you like to call it, victory, heading back to the capital in third place in the Premier League for the first time this season. Thomas Tuchel has taken this team to new levels as we see Champions League final, the FA Cup final next weekend, but now the chair on the top beating Pep Guardiola two times in the span of just three weeks. Alongside me today, our good friend of the podcast, Joe Tweedy. So great to have you back on, Tweeds. Just quick reactions to that game because for the first time in a really long time, Chelsea had a late winner to win a game. It seems like we haven't had that happen to us in a, in a quite long time. Yeah, I, I think this week has been bonkers, you know, and I think that the last-minute goal, the way that it happened, um, kind of summed up the week, I think. Obviously, you have this huge high in midweek against Real Madrid. Wonderful performance, one of the best Chelsea European performances I can remember. Um, and then, obviously, the prospect of coming to City. And I, I think, you know, what maybe is lost in the context of this, maybe for Chelsea fans, is that I think if City won today, they would have won the league title. So, you know, there is a lot of, I think, um, you know, onus on them to come and try and win the game. But I think particularly second half, the performance of the team was was fantastic. And yeah, as you say, you know, I think it's the first time we've had a winner in the league. And I, I, I do stand to be corrected here. I think since Loftus-Cheek scored against it, it might have been Cardiff or Swansea, one of, this, one, of the, uh, one of the Welsh teams. I think when Ruben scored like a last minute header, that might be the last time that we had this sort of, you know, kind of injury injury sort of time. Um, winner, but uh, yeah, as I said, crazy week, and I think this performance kind of was the, you know, the cherry on top of the uh, of the cake. Once again, tweets. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's us, usually us, be on the other side of that things, right? Getting the conceding goals in the last two minutes of stoppage time over the past couple of months, but. Once again today, a huge away victory. Thomas Tuchel hasn't lost yet on the road as Chelsea manager. Again, another win at the Etihad on Saturday evening. And I want to try to first get into the lineup, talk a little bit about our first reactions to when it was released, of course, an hour before kickoff. Some big calls made by Thomas Tuchel, highlighted probably by the addition of Billy Gilmore, keeping his spot from the last Premier League game. Mark Alonso gets a go out. And Mason Mount and Ben Shewell not even on the team bus to Manchester. And Thiago Silva also. I should be included in that list. But when you saw the sign up, I was a little bit nervous to see Alonso play, considering that Kachua <laughs> have been playing really well against English teams in particular. But I think it was probably good for these guys to get a rest. And Alonso answered the call, but not just him. Billy Gilmore into the starting 11 at a game that had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, emphasis to it. But that just shows, I think, just how much Tuchel trusts him. So initial thoughts on the lineup when it came out and what were your feelings going into this game? Because it was a rotated side from the city as well. Yeah, I think first and foremost, the you know this game probably has very little bearing on what happens in the European Cup final that's coming up. City will change a lot. We will change a lot. So I'm not reading too much in it from that perspective. Um, I think probably recently, I would say maybe the past two three games, I have stopped second guessing Tuchel selections. I think you know if if you are confidently predicting the starting lineup from week to week, then I would like to purchase whatever lottery numbers you are going to purchase, you know, next week as well. I think it was very difficult to predict, um, you know, who he's going to pick, why he's picking them at times, but he very rarely seems to get selections completely wrong. Um, I think the Alonso one was, I, I wouldn't say surprising, but because maybe we've seen Palm sort of Emerson come on and be sort of a late substitute in Europe. So maybe I was thinking he might deputize there. Um, 
I think really probably for Mason and, and, and Ben, probably, you know, justified that they have rest. We do have Arsenal coming up as well, obviously. I think they will most likely feature against them. Um, Billy was a surprising one because, you know, even as somebody who is a big fan of his, I didn't think he was fantastic in his last outing. Um, so again, to have that sort of faith repaid in you to start next to Kante. And I think Gilmore largely had a very good game. It was a very positive influence on the match. Um, probably you could you could look at the last performance as being a little bit of ring rust. He hadn't played too often before that. Um, and I think it just goes to show you maybe what a few performances in a row can do for him and his confidence. But yeah, I found it interesting. I mean, I think Silver, we know that Silver is going to have sort of a very managed and very deliberate sort of map schedule. No surprise to me that he wasn't playing. Um, I was maybe expecting or, or maybe hoping, I would say, to see Kurt Zuma and and uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi from the start. But obviously, as the game panned out, the, the Callum substitution was quite pivotal in turning that game at the end. And Zuma obviously stepped in for, for Christensen, who seems to have uh, injured, his, injured his hamstring in the uh, in the first goal. But, uh, you know, overall, as I said, I think the, the main take of this, and I think things going forward, Shane, is that there's no point really guessing anything about, about Tuchel's lineups. You know, he will select um, players based on a number of methods and manners that we have certainly not uh, privy to. And probably, you know, at this point, there's very little you know I think point in in second his his lineups but as I say a few changes that I personally would have made but again you know you look at the result and I said particularly the second half performance you can see the uh the way that this Chelsea side played and again you know as I said this will be a team that changes quite a bit for the Champions League final so City were hugely changed yes but I think the Chelsea side were maybe four or five players short of their best 11 as well I think too, I Thomas Tuchel. I think he knew something that I wasn't thinking of is, is Pep has to rotate too in this game because they're coming off traveling to Paris Saint Germain in the past couple of weeks in a really tough game against the French Giants. And although they did have an extra day, I'm pretty sure of rest than we did. They were rotating to the likes of uh, Sergio Aguero, who hasn't been able to play that many minutes this season in the Premier League. Ferran Torres came in. Laporte came in. I think, I'm pretty sure he came in because John Stones was suspended after getting a red card against Aston Villa, I'm pretty sure, last weekend. But I think Thomas Tuchel knew that this was going to be a rotating Man City side, too. And we've seen this season with these two teams in specific, especially since Tuchel's came in, how this depth has propelled these two teams to the top of the Premier League table because this season has been a season ridiculed by injuries, playing a lot of games in a short amount of time. But these two teams arguably, I mean, easily have the best two teams, best two depth squads in the league. So they've been able to rotate. And with Thomas Tuchel, it's been a plug and play success, three points every single week. So it's been brilliant to see all these different combinations of players working well with one another. I think it's really good for competition wise too, but I want to get into that first half because it was a Chelsea. I feel like Chelsea did dominate the first 25, 30 minutes and we had some chances. We had a go right after offsides from Timo Werner from a nice flick from Reese James. But then you get to the last five minutes of the game. And then all goes kind of chaotic in that first half, right? So you draw a penalty. I think Billy Gilmore's performance might be a little overshadowed by committed penalty, even though I think he had a pretty decent game, like you mentioned earlier. But give away the penalty. Sergio Aguero does. I don't even know what the hell he's doing. But also, we <laughs> talked about Christensen's injury. I, I'm kind of concerned about him because he wasn't looking to – I think probably this is fair to say this is his worst performance on Thomas Tuchel so far in that middle back three. He wasn't looking too established. But I think it's not all Christensen's fault that he conceded that goal, and I guess you can – I guess kind of further on this, but I think Christensen just wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rudiger wasn't back there to help him, and their city probably shouldn't even score it according to Aguero's first touch because it was miserable. Sterling's there to put it in. So what are your thoughts on that last five minutes because – Sterling gets the goal and then they get a penalty and looks like it's all going to go downhill for Chelsea from there. 
Yeah, the, the Christensen point that you make is, is interesting because I think today we saw the player that we've seen largely for his Chelsea mm-hmm. career, which is a little bit unnervy at times. And I think you're right to point out probably the first time that I've seen that player under Thomas Tuchel. Um, a little bit erratic, a little bit over-pursuing. Um, and you could probably say the same for Tony Rudiger in that first half. I don't think that back three performed um, as fluid, let's say, as, as what we've seen. Certainly for the goal, you could see both of them shot up out of position and it was you know, a little bit of, of play and they were in. Um, and then when it came to to the penalty itself, I mean, uh, you know, call me call me old-fashioned here, but I've never seen a player, you know, Jesus shot his, his left leg out a good... 50 centimetres, two foot, whatever you want to say, you know, to, to connect with Gilmore. Gilmore, yes, you know, he did catch him. But, you know, if you're looking at the, where they're both running in terms of their lines, Gilmore is so far away from him to then have that contact sort of initiated on him. I felt was a little bit harsh. And, uh, yeah, in terms of the penalty itself, um, I, I don't really know what to say about it, what, what Aguero was thinking. Um, you know, the the Penenka, the chip down the middle, it's, it's wonderful when it comes off. But the fact Mendy... Mendy actually committed to the dive and then sort of stopped himself in midair, it felt like, like a cat, and sort of repositioned his feet and then kind of, you know, caught it in, in one hand. Um, I can't imagine that uh, Guardiola was too happy about that at halftime. I could see his reaction when, when he actually missed the penalty. Don't mind it. If the goalkeeper makes a fantastic save, like it's sort of fair enough, you know, well, well-played goalkeeper. But when you've tried to be cool and, and you've tried to try to dink it down the middle to sort of humiliate the keeper and he's caught it, yeah, that's when things change a little bit. But, you know... I think largely the first half for me was was kind of two teams who had had a massive game in midweek were probably trying not to lose the game in the first half. Um, wasn't super, super competitive. I think you're right. We had a couple of chances. They had a few little breaks. Wasn't a, a vintage game. But that, that last sort of, you know, from like 30, I don't know, 39 minutes until, the, you know, half time, it the sort of the accelerator got, got pushed on. So, um, yeah, interesting end to the half. And I think, as you say, the, the Christensen injury, the manner in which he, he actually got injured is concerning because it came from a very, well, if we're talking about recently, very uncharacteristic piece of play for him recently. So, um, yeah, very strange into the half. I think, again, you know, um, going in at 1-0 down at half time. And again, I, you know, I, I keep forgetting it's happened. At the point that Sterling had scored and towards the end of the, end of the half, Sterling, for me, should have been sent off. Um, it was brushed over by every pundit, brushed over by everybody there. In the current game, the way the game is played with VAR, that the types of tackles you can and cannot make, going over the ball and putting a stud into someone's ankle is a red card offence. And the fact that VAR checked it, the fact that Anthony Taylor gave a yellow card um, was peculiar. So I'm not one for this sort of like karma and things even you know, evening themselves up, but the fact that I think Sterling shouldn't have been on the pitch going by sort of today's standards and the... The, the the miss from Aguero for me was sort of a little bit justice served there. But uh, yeah, going in a halftime one nil, t- a little bit disappointed because I, I was with you, although it wasn't a, a vintage performance, I do think we were slightly the better side. Um, but as you say, I think when we came out second half, we came out with, with real purpose. And I think that's from, from a Chelsea perspective, that is where the game really started for us. Can we just talk about real quick too this obsession that it seems like every single broadcasting company in England has in the Manchester City? Like, I, I don't know what it is because... BT Sport, Sky Sports, you name it. Like every single pundit will praise every single player from Manchester City for the littlest thing. Like I get Phil Foden <laughs> is a brilliant player, but wow, he made a flick on and it didn't complete the pass and it didn't go in the goal. So I just, can we just talk a little bit about that real quick? Because like even after the game, talking about the game, they highlight, of course, they put out Raheem Strowin's video against the press. They put out 
Pep Guardiola's video against the press talking about how it wasn't a penalty. I just, I don't, do you know why? I, I don't get it because it seems like for a little while it was Liverpool, right? Dominating the league. And actually I saw a funny photo, I think it was this past week of City versus Chelsea. It was like a Champions League final graphic. And then they had Steven Gerrard holding the, the, the Champions League trophy next. <laughs> like what is Sky Sports' obsession with these two top teams? Is it just because they're dominating England? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. This is an interesting question. It's actually made me laugh. Um, let's start with Liverpool, first of all. Now, if you go mm. through every single major, major, let's say, football show or whatever you want to, what do you uh. want to say? Um, you have Liverpool pundits are absolutely, absolutely everywhere. You know, um, Danny Murphy, Jamie Carragher, Michael Owen, um, uh, Jamie Redknapp, obviously. Who else is there? There's loads of them that I'm, I'm missing Graham here. Good God. Graham, yeah. Graham Souness, yeah, exactly. Um, you, if you go through every single channel and even you know further into into the media as well, there is just I, I can't remember. There, there was somebody on Twitter who kept a list of Liverpool pundits, <laughs> and the last time that I checked it, and I'm going to say that this this was about five years ago, they had about sixty people in the media, and I don't remember if that, that famous Mourinho comment that he said, you know, when I retire, I want to come and be a pundit because somebody needs to defend Chelsea, like because it's you know <laughs> Liverpool is everywhere. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the Liverpool thing is that they have so many ex-players in the, in the media um, that they kind of, you know, obviously they have a, a very a large affinity towards the club. They're very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, sympathetic to, to them in terms of what they're doing. Um, Soccer Saturday, you have um, oh Phil Thompson, oh. you, know, you know, going onto, onto, onto Soccer Saturday as well now. So there, there is... They're basically, I don't want to say they're like, you know, no, I'm not going to say that because I'll get in trouble, but they are everywhere. When it comes mm. to when it comes to football programs, it doesn't matter um, if it is, you know, being sport, if it's something random in some other country, um, there is always seemingly a Liverpool connection there. And when it comes to Manchester City, that is almost exclusively down to the English media's obsession with Pep Guardiola. You know, when mm. he was at Barcelona, the the kind of the esteem that he was held in and, and, you know, quite rightly so he's an incredible manager. I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that, but he, they would almost hold him up as this kind of deity, you know, this sort of footballing idol, football God, you know, reinventing football, reinventing this, that, the other, and for a period of time, certainly, of course, that's true. Um, and I think now that he's come to Manchester city, every time that he does something tactically, it becomes this, you know, kind of topic of conversation for like six weeks. Oh, Pep's used inverted fullbacks, but I mean, you know, the Dutch systems have Dutch systems did that 20, 30 years ago. Um, you know, he's using such and such in this particular role, and it's like, yeah, but I mean, all this sort of stuff—it's just repackaging stuff that's happened before. Um, and the thing that fascinates me, particularly about Guardiola, and this is something that I'd love for people to start paying attention to, when you look at the way that they play, their entire defensive structure when it comes to counters is based on tactical fouling or committing fouls. And to have such an incredibly negative part of football that people completely gloss over, um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to his way of, of playing football, for me, is is very very strange, you know. And if you actually look at the look at the amount of possession that they have in a game, and then the number of fouls that they commit, it's so out of sync with the rest of the league. They commit such a higher ratio of fouls compared to their ball possession because their number one way of of stopping counter attacks of, of you know being able to defend on the transition is to foul early. And you saw it a couple of times to get today. I think Christian Pulisic got fouled a couple of times on the halfway line, second half. One in particular, I think Jesus got booked for. But that foul that they do, and it's always a different player. It's, it's so intelligent. It's such an intelligently 
kind of dark art that he has. Um, but nobody, but nobody talks about that because if if somebody like Burnley did it, you know, Sean Dyche or Sam Allardyce, it would be like the most lamented thing in all of football. Um, but yeah, you know, so so people who listen to to the podcast, Shane yourself, when you watch City play next, when they lose possession, watch how quickly someone tries to foul someone, and that is basically their entire way of defending transitions. Because people are like, oh, you know, well, why didn't City play with like a destroyer or a holding midfielder? Well, it's because they foul as soon as they lose the ball. You know, David Silva was an absolute expert at it. Fouling players, Kevin De Bruyne, fouling players, Fernandinho, fouling players. I mean, it, it's what they do. Um, you know, think back to the, the semi-final in the FA Cup where Fernandinho is trying to wrestle Mason Mount on the touchline, but Mount Riggle's free. That is the kind of foul I'm talking about. Um, they try and commit them all the time, but people just ignore it because it's Guardiola and he's, you know, shiny, shiny standard of football, but let's ignore all the dark arts. So... Yeah, that, that's that's a that's more of a personal peeve, I'd say, about sort of Guardiola and his system. But yeah, it is frustrating because I don't think either we've really kind of got the the credit that we've that we've kind of deserved, maybe. And I'm thinking also back to Antonio Conte, who really kind of reshaped the 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 way that sort of modern football is played, particularly reintroducing a back three system, wing backs, all that sort of stuff that that he kind of reintroduced and brought back. Um, you rarely you rarely hear any of that sort of mention in conjunction with the England team and the current England setup when they play with that. Um, this current system that Tuchel's playing, you know, when City have shifted to a back three, Tottenham, whoever it may be, all kinds of stem from Chelsea and Antonio Conte, but we rarely get the credit for that because we're not a uh, we're not a fashionable team in that respect. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. So so Liverpool, you know, to sum it up. Liverpool is so many ex players in the media. It's difficult to get around that. Um, and, and they obviously have very prominent and big positions as well. Mm. Um, and then the, the second one, as I said, is, is with City, it's almost exclusively down to Guardiola and this perception that he is, you know, the footballing equivalent of, of Bill Belichick, basically. Do you think it have, might have something to do with the fact that, I mean, if you talked a little bit about this, but specifically Pep Guardiola, right, beat in United in the early 2010s at, at Wembley and then beating them in 09 in Rome and beat in Sir Alex Ferguson, who was at that time and still is the top of managers in, in the football landscape. And dominating those two games, really, right? I mean, 2009, I think it was a 2-0 game, of course. Yeah. Messi has that famous header. And then 2011, at their own ground in Wembley, United looked terrible. I think Rooney scored in that game, but I think Barcelona ended up winning 3-1. So do you think it was maybe because of that? Like, Guardiola is the new shiny guy in town with Barcelona beating the top of the top at that time at United. And then also, now I'm kind of confused on why united isn't as praised as much as well because they do have the presence in, in the media room but i feel like liverpool and city for some really weird reason and i, I know you talked a little bit about just how many pundits are, are former players from those two teams but i just don't really get it because i i mean praise city all you want really do but when they don't play good like you can't just blow that away like even in the champions league over the past couple of seasons like they have not taken their chance in the Champions League, and it's just all forgotten about because they won the Premier League. Like, there's still a lot of margins in this team that just aren't criticized, which is kind of frustrating as a Chelsea fan because it feels like every single thing that Chelsea do wrong is criticized. So, I mean, it's just a little bit of pet peeve of mine. I, I sometimes have to mute the commentators just because I get so frustrated with them. But we move <laughs> on, and I mean, it's Liverpool's loss because they're not even going to make the Europa League this season. So. We'll move on to the next couple of talking points, but I'd like to talk about that with you because it's interesting to see, to see another person's perspective on that agreeing with me because I think it is a problem in the media right now, especially over in England. But I'm going to talk a little bit about that second half because, of course, Kurzuma comes on at halftime towards the end of the first half, actually, and plays the full 45 minutes in the second half in the middle of the defense. But it's Ziyech, right, who gets the goal. I think it was the 63rd, 62nd minute. 
Chelsea came out of the break. They dominated. This is something I've really been impressed with, too, for Thomas Tuchel. The times, the times where they have hit adversity, bar, of course, the West Brom game because they were down to 10 men, but the times that they have hit adversity, you think um, adversity, Miami. You think of at least that Real Madrid game last week when Benzema scores a wonder of a goal. The Chelsea team of 2018 probably doesn't respond like they did last week against Real Madrid and come out and just dominate them in the second leg. I feel like our mentality right now was at the top level. And we came out of the second half. We really dominated. Reese James and Hakim Ziyech really had a really good game, I think, in the second half, especially after playing, kind of being absent in the first half, Ziyech and, and James in particular. But Ziyech, he takes it greatly. It's a great touch from Ziyech. If it was Aspilicueta who had the assist, right? He pulled it back to Ziyech. Yeah. And Ziyech had a really great touch, and we saw him put it into that bottom right-hand corner. I believe it was against Burnley, too, that he did kind of, kind of the same thing in his other Premier League goal. But talk about Ziyech real quick because he gets the opportunity today, and he has he's had success against Man City in the past. And he's, I mean, I know we were talking about future down the line but is he a kind of a person that you could see starting in the Champions League final that's down the line but I guess against the city defense he, he's done the bit so far against the team I know he's not doing things 24-7 but he's creating those special moments to score the goals yeah and I think the the interesting moment for me in this goal was actually ZX work to sort of pinch the ball back from um Rodri I think it was um Really, you know, speaking about sort of the dark arts of Pep Guardiola, it, it is something that I, I enjoy. And I kind of, I I sort of wish that Chelsea had a bit more of that sometimes in their locker. But CX just about gets away with not fouling him. Little clip of the little clip of the heels, little pull of the shirt. You can see Roger is expecting the free kick to be given, but no. Um, and actually the, the entire goal comes from, comes from that ability or at least the desire from, from Ziyech to actually work back and, and win the ball back. And that work rate, that hunger, isn't something that I've seen from him all the time. So to actually see that the, the catalyst for the goal comes from his ability to come back, work back, do, the, do sort of the, the dog work um, was fantastic. And then again, the, the quality, the quality of the movement of the passing, um, I felt was, was fantastic. Really, really nice pullback from, from Aspie. Um, for some reason, the past couple of games, his his quality going forward has just sort of looked incredible considering, you know, some of the stuff we've seen in the past few years from him at fullback. Um, but a really nice pick out of Zich. And as you say, um, the finish was great. I mean, the, the goalkeeper got a hand to it, but I just think there was too much power and too much direction behind it. But yeah, I think after seeing, um, you know, maybe Zich in midweek, you know, I think there was there was disappointment. There was, you know, people, well, he's, he's not in any of the celebration photos and he's not posted on Instagram, which is sort of the modern, you know, the modern uh, psychology of football. If you haven't posted on Instagram, you must be unhappy and want to leave. Um, but seeing that sort of narrative go from there to, you know, scoring the, the equaliser today was was fantastic. And I think you're right, largely second half, I thought Ziyech was, was a very positive force. Um, I think James was, you know, from, I think when he doesn't play regularly, I think, it takes him a little while to get going in games. I've seen that before. I think, you know, if you remember early part of the season when he was playing right back, you know, yeah. he was probably one of our best players playing week in, week out, playing regularly. Um, but second half, when he got up to speed, I think he he might have been, actually, he probably was Chelsea's best player. Um, mm. You know, real drive, real power. I think he completely pocketed Mendy. I think he, he turned the, mm. the game for me with his ability to drive. And at some point when Chelsea have a striker who can actually read some of these crosses, or maybe be in more, let's say, let's call them strikery areas. Oh. If they can be in more strikery areas, he might have three assists a game. He put in mm. about four or five balls today, which were absolutely superb. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's kind of sort of the, 
the yin and yang of Reese James at the moment is that I think his his automatic delivery into those areas is amazing. But I think at the moment he may need to maybe sort of remember that he doesn't have a number nine in there sometimes. So I think sometimes he puts his amazing crosses in, but maybe it's better if he takes a touch and maybe tries to pull the ball back or something because mm. you know he, he's getting into some good areas. Um, and as I said, his his automatic delivery is just so good. But his automatic delivery at the moment is is going to nobody because we don't really have anyone who has those sorts of instincts. So it's a bit of a shame to weigh some of these crosses. But yeah, largely I think he was he was fantastic. I don't know if he got the official man of the match or not, but he was, mm. you know, I think he he was very, very good second half. But yeah, the, the goal from Ziyech, obviously the equalizer was, was fantastically well taken. And I think actually from from that point onwards, you know, I, t- I text my friend saying, I think we might actually win this, you know, after the goal. Um, I think we played well and we, we probably we probably did deserve it, I think, on the balance of play after the, after the equaliser. Quick set on James and then I'll hit on that Ziyech point. It is a crime that Reese James only has two assists in the Premier League this season. Yeah. In 29 games with all the chances that he's created and he has two assists. That, that's it. Like, he must be like, I don't know how, like, he must be super strong mentally because he puts in time and time again so many great balls. Maybe it's in the Arab, and in, the, in this case, today I'm pretty sure it was on the ground to, to Werner. So many great balls that just don't get rewarded. So it must be frustrating him, but he keeps on putting the balls, and he keeps on doing the work, and it will come. It will come because I think hopefully his goal numbers hopefully will go up too because he has been trying to shoot out from the top of the box. And I think Ziyech too, maybe he's a good a role model for these other Chelsea players to start actually shooting from out of the box because I, I don't know if there's players are like, do they know that you can do that? Like you can shoot a goal from outside the box. <laughs> so, um, and Ziyech, he, like he said, like he's a freshman player at some points, but he keeps on trying. He takes some risks, but at those risks, a goal is going to come with it. And so hopefully he's a good example from the other team because he's the only person right now who's taking shots out of the box, maybe bar Rudiger and, and bar Reese James. But I mean, Hopefully Chelsea players take some more shots because if you don't shoot it, you're not going to score. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I know Ziyech, he, he takes a lot of chances. We see him take some really insane shots sometimes. They, they're they on target. I mean, they're not powerful enough like it was today. <laughs> but, I mean, what are your thoughts? What is your message for the Chelsea fans out there? What is your message for the Chelsea team? Because it seems like Chelsea don't shoot inside, like outside the box. And it's kind of frustrating because, like, if you don't shoot, they're not going to score, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's that's definitely true. Um, I wonder a little bit whether we have the players. Let's put it that mm. way. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things that I see is people talk about Chelsea. You know, Chelsea creating a lot of chances under Thomas Tuchel. But to your point, a lot of them are these sort of speculative shots from outside the area. So mm. if we create five chances in a game, if if we have five shots from Rudiger from forty yards, cover <laughs> Jorginho Kante from outside the area, and maybe one from Reese James. Like those five chances, just because we've had them doesn't mean that they're good chances or good shots. Um, that's probably the, the only real downfall of this system is that the only person, or the, let's let's say the only people really that have a shot from outside the area are Ziyech, um, Havertz, and probably Mason Mount in this team. Mm. Um, so working the ball to the edge of the area for Kante to shoot from 30 yards, I'm always a little bit like, yeah, okay. Um <laughs> You know, but uh, I don't know. I, I have a feeling that, that Rudiger is going to score one of these 45-yard efforts he, in the final. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Is he a center I mean, back? I, I, is, is he actually a centre-back, Antonio Rudiger? I don't think he is mentally. Um, but I th- yeah, I mean, positionally, yes. But I think he's obviously, in another life, he was probably a, a goal-scoring oh. attacking midfielder. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would I would like to see us shoot a bit more from outside the area because I think it, mm. it, it at least... 
it prompts the opposition to close us down more, you know, because I think sometimes when we we see certain players there that they're so reluctant to close them down because they don't really fear the shot or they don't fear the pass. If you shoot a little bit more, maybe then it causes a bit more movement from the from the opposing defenders and that creates mm. your space for your forwards. Um, you know, the threat of having a Lampard or an Essien or somebody like that there is that they always had that ability to shoot from 25, 30 yards. So you knew that you had to close them down. It's the same with Kevin De Bruyne. You know, you're not just going to stand there and let him have the ball from 25 yards and let him do what he wants to do. Um, and I think that probably is the evolution of this Chelsea team is maybe finding somebody, whether that is in the transfer market or wherever, in that midfield area that has that sort of capability of, of, of at least being a threat in that final third area. Um, because I think that way you're going to encourage defensive midfielders to press, you're going to you know, encourage centre-backs to move out rather than, you know, it coming to Jorginho or Culver from 30 yards out and you're going, yeah, go on, you can have a shot. It's absolutely fine. I'm just going to stand where I am because I, I'm so confident that you're not going to hit the one in 1,000 shot. Um, I'm quite happy to stay in my position. If you've got somebody who can be a bit of a threat, who has a shot, like Ziyech today, if Ziyech gets the balls in those areas, doesn't matter if you're a centre-back or a holding player, or whatever, you have to go and close him down. You have to respect that he has that ability. Same with Mason Mount, same with Havert. So, um, you know, I think when the ball goes to Rudiger, maybe that, that threat quite quite isn't there. Um, but I'm hoping, I have my fingers crossed, that he he pulls mm. out that that David Luiz goal against Fulham, which I'm not sure if you will remember. Um, Luiz scored, like, it was the most boring game, and Luiz got the ball about 40 yards out and just pinged it into the top corner. That is what I'm hoping for from Rudiger in the final. You know, I don't care how many of these millions of shots he's missed. If he scores one in the final, then, you know, he, he can do it every game. Oh. The thing that gets me is is looking at some of these heat maps and looking at these average positions. And Tony Rudiger, in some games, has a higher up the pitch average position than the midfield, the win backs. I mean, like, yeah. this guy probably takes on, completes probably five or six dribbles a game as a center back. Like, it's insane. And it, I, I laugh every time he does it. I know it's coming. I know it's, but I, I laugh so, I saw, I laugh so hard because he's so fast. Like, I mean, he runs so, like, in the other day, too, I think it was against Real Madrid. He ran super fast and he actually, like, tilted his head back because he runs, like, yeah. so fast. I mean, like, I saw that. Yeah. This, this guy is a brilliant player, but also, I mean, he's just, he's a super comical guy. And I, I laugh every time it happens, but hopefully he's a sign for the rest of the team. And hopefully one of these goals goes in, especially in a big game, like an FA cup final or a Champions League final, God forbid, or even just an Arsenal game. I mean, that would be brilliant to see Antonio Ruger score a goal because he wants one clearly. Uh, let's transition into the offsides from today, of course, because, Oh God, geez. I mean, <laughs> tweets, I, you know how many times I jumped off my couch rooting for a goal just to be, like flagged up by official who makes the right call in the end of the day, makes the right call and don't even have to go to the VAR. The Werner goal against Real Madrid, the Werner goal today, the Callum goal today, I was going great. Callum Hudson-Odoi yeah. almost scored the winner today. That would have been brilliant to see. Of course, he had involvement in the, in the final goal, but I mean, it's such a frustrating thing to see that flag go up. And I don't know if it's timing. I think Chelsea strikers have to work on their timing, of course, but we're putting the ball in the back and that is just so the flag by the ball that goes back in the net. So does the flag goes up. So, I mean, it's just, it's frustrating from a Chelsea point of things. I think it was, what is it? it was a three or four, three or four offside goals that we had disallowed today. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's been a kind of a common theme recently. So what are your thoughts on that? Because is it something that they have to teach better or is it just something like the discipline of this Chelsea squad? Cause it's frustrating. Okay. So the, the comical approach to this is, I am more and more convinced that Timo has a contractual obligation to be offside like seven times a game. It's getting to a point now where that is the only logical conclusion. Maybe it's something to do with his boot sponsor. When they zoom in on the VAR, you get to see his boots in a bit more detail, <laughs> something like that. I'm not too sure. Um, oh. What 
what frustrates me with him is that he is certainly when it comes to acceleration and when it comes to having that burst, he is one of the quickest players in world football. So mm. if you know that you're that quick and you know that, that is, that's your calling card, give yourself half a yard on the centre-back because you're going to get the ball anyway. It was like the uh, the Madrid, I think the Madrid one that he, uh, did he score mm. against Madrid an offside goal yeah. as well? Yeah, you know, the homework, yeah. You, 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 yeah, exactly. You know, you, you can outrun Sergio Ramos with a blindfold and probably your bootlaces tied up. You don't have to be on the shoulder if you're as quick as he is. Oh. So when it comes to like technique and when it comes to anticipation and all of these sorts of traits, if you are really, if you're Olivier Giroud and you can't run, sure, you know, you, you gamble because that's the way you're going to get ahead of people. If you're Timo Werner and you are widely accepted to be the fastest player at the club, maybe one of the fastest players in the Premier League, certainly quicker than all of City's centre-backs. Um, you know, give yourself give yourself 30 centimetres because you're still going to get on the end of things. Um, but it's it's insane, honestly, how many times he is offside um, when, he, when he doesn't need to be. And it's not digging him out because, again, you know, he played a big part in the goal and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, you're, you're sort of looking at a player that could be so much better than what he is if he just had a bit more of a sort of an appreciation of what's going on around him, you know, as you say, if, if you, if he gives himself a yard in some of these situations, maybe he doesn't score every single chance, but he could have another five, six, seven goals this season. Mm. Um, And I don't, I don't know how you fix that unless you know, you're, you're too cool. And you maybe put like a big giant piece of string on him, but he can't run, you know, like a dog at the end of the leash and then you let him go. Um, But it, it just seems to be a part of his game that I think we need to really work on at some point. It's just, you know, beyond my sort of comical takes of how to actually hold him back. Maybe Reese James holds on to him, because obviously Reese is very strong. Maybe Reese, you know, sort of the parachute thing where they hold on to them and they're doing the sprint drills. Maybe Reese just holds on to him and then it's, lets him go at the right moment. But it's 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 crazy. That would be kind of like in the NFL you see nowadays, like an offensive lineman pushing a running back forward to score a touchdown, something like that. Reese James holding back yeah. to Werner until he can actually run <laughs> and score a goal. That'd be until really he's allowed to run. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I, it's 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 frustrating, right? Because it's not just Werner. I mean, it, it's it's different players from yeah, Chelsea. Yeah, it's not just Timo. But I mean, it, I, I, it's it's just comical at this point because you just know, like, when the ball goes in the back of the net, and, and that's the thing too, because he is so fast. Like, you don't need to to have a half step on on these on these slow defenders. But I mean, I, I would love to see that kind of an NFL reincarnation with Reese James holding back to the Werner connection <laughs> run. It's kind of like I'm trying to think of what kind of it also is like. It's like if you're in like a track race and like you're not like you're not starting early, like it's like a false start. But I don't know, something like that. But moving yeah. on to, um, I want to talk a little bit about Tina Livermento because he made the squad today. That was really cool to see. Um, I think this was his first time making the squad in the Premier League. He played against Manchester yeah. United the other day. Oh, well, actually, probably not the other day. A couple of weeks ago in that four-two loss, that was actually pretty ugly for the Chelsea uh, academy team. But it's great then to see him in the, in the bench. Today. I think that just shows just how much he's impressing Tuchel, especially in training. We've seen uh, Tino Andrew make the bench a couple of times. If I'm not mistaken, we saw Lewis Spate make the bench a couple of times this season as well. But Tino Andrew, I mean Tino Livermento makes the bench in this game. Doesn't get an appearance, of course, because it was a really important game and it was 1-1 going into the latter sides of the game. But pretty cool to see him on the bench, right? Because that just shows how much he is impressing Tuchel in training. Yeah, Livermento is is certainly one to keep an eye on for people. Mm. And again, if you're if you're unfamiliar with him, if Chelsea play this system next season, there yeah. is a I think a very significant argument to say that Livermento is the most natural fit in the squad at that mm. wingback slot. Um 
you know, he has, he has the, th- the difference between, let's say, like a Reese and him is that Livermento has a natural winger skill set. Reese is more of a fullback who is playing as a wing back, whereas Livermento is more of a probably a wing back who can play as a winger, who can play as a wide midfielder. He has more of that one on one ability at wide. Um, and I think he's, he's probably more direct in terms of how he plays. So if you're looking for like a traditional, like a traditional wing back in terms of that one on one ability, the ability to get forward, the motor, the engine, the ability to create, to be, you know, you're supposed to be in this system, in, you know, when you get into the final third, you are the width of the team. So you have to have some sort of winger capabilities. Um, he he probably has, I think, in terms of that skill set, you know, the, the best wing back ability in terms of people in the squad. Um, maybe he needs to go out on loan, all, all the sort of usual caveats, but it would be nice to see him make a debut at some point because, um, you know, we let go of Tarek Lamptey and people were very disappointed about that. I think people that, that watch Chelsea's academy and, and know the academy to sort of a bit more of a detailed um, level than most people were disappointed that Tarek left, but also quietly confident because I think Livermento is a better version of uh, than Lamptey. Um, has everything that Tarek Lamptey has, but he has a bit more size, he's a bit more physical and he's a bit more durable. Um, and I think certainly at Chelsea, has shown for me to be more of an effective kind of playmaker in the final in the final third as well. So, you know, Lamptey was a big loss, but I think the club were, were they weren't happy to lose him, but they they knew that they had somebody like Livermento in the wings to potentially take that spot. So, you know, we're looking at Aspilicueta now in sort of his early 30s and where he may be. I think Reese James eventually maybe starts playing as a right centre back in this system. Um, he played there a lot for the academy, and I think his his physique, his passing ability, the ability to step into midfield. I think that is a real dangerous weapon. You then combine that with maybe Livermento playing as a wing back. You've got a very, very attack-minded and potent side of the of the team there. So that is maybe me future predicting a little bit and, and suggesting where Livermento can be. But in terms of the Chelsea Academy players at the moment, he is one that I think has the capability and has the tools to play for Chelsea at the first team level. May not be soon, may not be, you know, next season, could be the season after. Um, but again, if, if this system is here to stay. At the moment, he has the most natural fit in terms of in terms of that position. I think too, looking back at the under 23s formation recently, I think you talked about this before in the London's Blue podcast, but also on your first edition of the Kim's Road podcast, is how Chelsea are trying to actually I think this was I think this was when the, the London's Blue guys, or maybe you were on and talking to, to someone from the academy, etc., playing the formation that the manager is playing in the first team. And that's what they're doing on our 23s and I mean, they're playing that three, four, two, one system. And that's where Livermento is playing at the, at the right wing back position. So it's cool to see him playing there, getting to adjust it to the formation, because even though Chelsea fans are expecting maybe something different from Tuchel next year, I mean, if it's not, not going to waste, like don't tear the system up because it's been so successful at Chelsea. I know Antonio Conte, there's some resemblance of him having a lot of success and then teams preparing over the summer, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like Thomas Tugel can, can continue this formation whenever the heck he wants to. So watch out for Lee Romento because I think he does have a really good future for Chelsea. And I'm happy that you brought him up here because it was great to see him on the bench, of course. And um, hopefully he can get some game time pretty soon for this Chelsea first team. Probably not going to be this end of the season, but maybe in a Carabao Cup game coming up next year, that'd be really cool to see a guy like Lee Romento start in the game. But let's move on into the referees and the FA because – Every single game of the Premier League that I've watched this season, and it's not just Anthony Taylor. I mean, we can get we can get into him. We can rage about him. But every single referee, every single game in the FA this season, FA should be ashamed of themselves. There's a reason why 
none of these English refs are refereeing this summer at the Euros, and there's a reason why none of them are refereeing in the Champions League semifinals, quarterfinals, and the final. It's because they're not good. They're terrible. And I feel like sometimes they are sometimes relying on VAR to do their job, which, first of all, shouldn't be the case. But also, second of all, like you mentioned today, they seem to be going off this kind of weird karma system. And we saw Billy Gilmore, of course, commit that penalty that you can debate we talked about how it probably shouldn't have been a penalty. And then of course, at the end of that game, we could talk a little bit about later is, is Kurt Zuma puts down Strew and Anthony Taylor isn't calling anything. I mean, like, it's like, just because you got a call wrong at the other end doesn't mean that you make the wrong call. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like it was frustrating, even though it might've gone against us, that's just, they're so inconsistent. And it's embarrassing to the FA to see this because they're not getting referees to the Euros. They're not getting referees to the key moments in the Europe league, the champions league, probably not even going to be at the world cup in 2022. Cause they're just so bad. And it seems like we're like the only country in football right now who can't manage this VAR system. And it's frustrating. And it's frustrating as a fan. And it's not just Anthony Taylor. I mean, it's Stuart Owl, Kevin Friend, you name it. They're terrible. And that's why they're not going to be at these international competitions. So what are your thoughts on these referees in general? But also, you talked a little bit about this earlier, this karma system of, oh, wow, I didn't get a call right at the other end. So I'm just not going to favor that team and, and make, this, make the wrong call on the other end like it kind of happened today. Oh, Shane, go off, sir. Um, yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me that I think one of the takeaways from this whole Super League fiasco oh. is that the undoubted, I think, position of the Premier League as the central league in world football, I don't think that is in any question now in terms of the, the, the importance of the Premier League. And with that being said, the Premier League has this, this position of power, this position of influence, this position of, of, I think, unrivaled success at this point in time. And yet this season, I mean, in particular, has been the worst standard of refereeing that I have ever seen. And I think partly, I think you're right, it comes down to the fact that they are hoping that VAR bows them out. They're, they're unwilling to, in some cases, make a decision. Um, and the use of VAR as well. I mean, I think this is something that, that we've spoken about previously in terms of decision-making. When VAR was, was mooted, when it was, was sort of suggested as a, a sort of additional supplement to, to the game, the whole ethos behind it was to overturn clear and obvious mistakes. It wasn't to sit there with, you know, a professor of geometry looking at, you know, Pythagoras theorem and trigonometry to determine that somebody's shin was, you know, a third of a millimeter offside. Um, and I think that extreme, you know, the extreme that we've gone to on VAR is, is part of the issue. And I think I said one of the things you mentioned on your on your podcast before was that if if I review a decision on a video, like, for example, when, a, when you see a, a replay on television, you can normally tell by the second replay if something is wrong. You know, as, as a normal, normal person who watches sport, it's the same with the NFL. It's the same with pretty much mm. any sport that has a video replay system. As a fan, one or two, you know, one or two replays, a good angle, you can make a decision. I still think that VAR, if you cannot make a decision within 20 seconds, then whatever has been given on the pitch stands. Because this geometry lesson that we see, you know, the the, the lines, the little graph that this nerd is drawing in the middle of the middle of nowhere, um, you know, it, it, it's so far removed from the spirit of the game and the intention of what VAR was. Clear and obvious errors are not, mm. you know, my right toe is, you know, half an inch offside. That shouldn't be the, the way that this is being used. And I think that mentality has now seeped into the referees because, you know, if you look, look at the flow of this game today, Sterling 
in terms of uh, decisions, Sterling should have been sent off. I still think Gabriel Jesus bought a penalty. Kurt Zuma definitely gives a penalty away at the end of the game. Those, for me, are three very like simple decisions to make, certainly when it comes to VAR. If I'm looking at VAR and I see Gabriel Jesus throw himself into Billy Gilmore to win a penalty, I probably don't give it. If I look at VAR and I see Raheem Sterling stamp over the top on, I think it was it Pulisic? I can't remember now, but whoever it was, mm, you know, stamp over the that angle. Yeah. In the current rules, it's a record. Oh, it was Werner. Yeah, true. Yeah, it was Werner. Um, yeah, and at the at the death, if I see Kurt Zuma trip up, you know, Raheem Sterling running through a goal, then I, I it, it's a penalty. And th- these shouldn't be contentious, you know, massively debated things. But as you say, you know, the referee is keeping this kind of game of of, of head tennis. You know, okay. I missed this, so then I need to even this up here, or I've, I know, or yeah, I got this wrong, so I need to, you know, and and it's becoming more and more apparent, and it's it's not just Chelsea games. I mean, you know, we we have had yeah. some very bad referees. Anthony Taylor is the standout, but you know, you have tons of them that make ridiculous decisions. Um, but you know, if if I'm the Premier League, I am looking at investing in in, you know, they invest so much into the league. Why can't they go and get the best referees from around the world? I mean, is, is there, I, you know, to my knowledge, there's not a rule that a referee, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm assuming that the referee has to speak English, but apart mm. from that, I don't see there being a massive, you know, a massive uh, issue in terms of going and cherry picking the best referees from, from around the world, pay them a lot of money to come in and make the game better. Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't really remember back to the, maybe Howard Webb was the last referee that was very good in the Premier League. And he's been retired for maybe five years. I don't know how long he's been retired for. But for a, a, you know a, an extended period of time, um, you know, and, and maybe I said maybe referees need to be under more scrutiny. You know, I mean, you watch other leagues. You know, the A League in Australia, they they have the referees mic'd up. It's fantastic. You get to hear what they're talking about. You get to hear the thought process. Um, why can't you ask a referee after the game? Why did you make this decision? What? Why are they this sort of protected group of individuals? You know, I said it's a privileged position to be. If you're a referee, it's a privileged position to be a Premier League referee. You can't be a referee who has that. There's there's no sort of governance or mm. or structure to you know he he you know Taylor will be refereeing next week. You know people who make mistakes they might sit up for one weekend and then they're back in the rotation. It, it baffles me, really, really baffles me. And I think you know as I said, you've got the combination of VAR being such a ridiculously um, you know nitpicky over the top system combined with the worst group of talent in terms of referees. You know I, I've been watching Premier League football since I was you know, I don't know, 10 from what I can remember it. So like a good 20, 20 plus years, you know, 25 plus years, whatever it's going to be. This is the worst group of referees in what is meant to be the best era of football. Um, you know, as I said, if, if you if you can go out and, and employ referees from other leagues, I would be all over that, you know. Oh, that, that Turkish referee is fantastic. Let's bring him in for a season, pay him, pay him good money, you know. Because improving the standard of refereeing it also improves the standard of the league. You spend less time with pundits spending 25 minutes talking about a tackle and them actually, you know, doing their jobs and analysing the game, providing value, actually giving you insight into what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could moan about this for another half an hour, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it short here. But to your point, yes, it, it's a combination of VAR and I think probably the worst group of referees we've had in, I don't know, maybe, maybe as long as I've been watching Premier League football. You know, it'd be great. And it's actually kind of sad that that this man is, is going to take a new manager job. But you know what I'd love to see and actually it would make absolutely box office entertainment for likes of Sky Sports. Put the referees in a pre in a post-match interview and have oh, Jose yeah. Mourinho absolutely smash <laughs> them for every single question. Put Jose Mourinho into the Sky Sports presser 
and have him interview the referee after a game if he wasn't a manager. Like, that would be absolutely gold. And they, they'd make even more money off of it. Like, I don't get why they haven't. I mean, they probably brought up the idea and they talk a lot about it of like pundits. And I think it was even Mourinho talk about like, why isn't the referee out to talk about his decision? Like, it would be gold. And like, yeah. even through yep. the game, I don't see why they can't do it. I mean, like, they're going to be embarrassed either way. So why not at least talk about your mistakes like logically like i just feel like you look even more stupid if you don't give an explanation you know so i think that'd be absolutely gold if like one day Mourinho works for sky sports and just gives interviews to referees after the game (laughs) absolutely tears them apart i mean it'll never happen but i think it'd be absolutely comical um but yeah i mean we could we could go on for days about the referees let's talk about the end of the game because it was really awesome come up the door comes on plays great and I think Georgino had a really nice game when he came on the 70th minute. Yep. And I controlled the game nicely alongside Billy Gilmore, giving Angola Conte a rest, which I think I was surprised to not see him get arrested again. If I was too cool, which I never will be, um, I would have played <laughs> Jorginho and, and, not, and not Conte. But I mean, Conte gets more minutes. He has a good game. He gets subbed off in the 70th minute, gets his rest. Good. Jorginho comes on, really controls the game well, puts some long balls over the top. That one time when Timo Werner was clearly offside, I think he had that ball when Timo Werner rounded uh, Ederson and scored the goal. But I think when Clemens Adore came on the pitch, when he plays alongside Reese James, that is a great right-hand side. Clemens yeah, Adore yeah. and Reese James interchange today was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it was so fun to watch. And that's what caused the goal because Reese James passed with Clemens Adore, who flicked it over to Timo Werner, who ran down the right, passed it in, and Marcus Alonso scores another late minute, uh, late minute winner for Chelsea. I mean, after all the ridicule, it's Marcus Alonso scoring the goal, which makes it even more funny. But Clemens Adoy was so vital to us getting that second goal today because we probably could have had three if we're being honest. Because, I mean, he scored a goal also, and he was offsides. So he's getting into those good areas. I want him to start against Arsenal because I think that would be a really good game for him to, get his, to find his footing. So what are your thoughts on Hudson and involvement in this game after coming on the bench, specifically him? I know Jorginho had a good game, but I think Cho really changed the outlook of this game and he played really well with Reese James on that right-hand side. Yeah, I was, I was super disappointed that his goal got ruled out. Um, yeah. You know, I think wasn't it, it was his know, knee too, wasn't it? It was, it was his freaking yeah, was, knee. It was offside. Yeah. It was, it was like, uh, yeah. I mean, again, when we're talking about, you know, when I, when I was growing up or when I played football, you used to have a, a rule that you would give advantage to the, to the center forward. So if they, if they appeared level, you know, you, you would give the advantage to the attacker. Obviously, that has died now because, you know, the previously mentioned geometry session we were talking about. Um, but again, in terms of that, you know, it shouldn't, I don't think it should surprise people anymore that the link up between Chelsea's academy players, regardless mm. of whether they've actually played together, is incredible. You know, they have effectively been brought up in the same system. They have the same patterns. They recognize the same movements in each other. Obviously, with recent Callum, they have played with each other a lot. So that is an added layer of, of, of um, quality on top of that already inbuilt sort of chemistry they have. Um, but I think Callum really, really sort of drove the game forward and actually was probably the main reason we ended up winning. Um, and, it, you know, it was interesting after the game to see Tuchel really spend, you know, a bit of time with him on the pitch. And I saw a, a tweet from Ollie Glanville, you know, was sort of he was sort of doing the lip reading or, you know, sort of listening into what was being said. And Tuchel was sort of pushing him, going like, "That this is what I want from you. This is what I expect from you. You know, this is what I want to see." Um, and it's that directness. Like for example, when he received the ball from, uh, I think it was from Reese, he could have just played the ball back to Reese, and that that would have been the end of the move. But he he turned and actually drove. You know, he he started driving uh, driving at Nathan Ake. Um, 
and it's that sort of stuff that I want to see more from him. You know, I think if you're going to get into the team, if he's going to start making a case to play, um, you know, he needs to be, and I appreciate that he's still coming back from the injury and we've still got a little bit of the after effects of confidence on that, I see. Um, but his calling card to pair, compared to other players is his directness, his ability to dribble at pace, his change of direction, his ability to be both great on the right and left-hand side. Um and decisive you know as an academy player he was a very decisive player and by that I mean somebody who would create a lot he would score goals he would be the main player that people would be looking to try and counteract from the other team um and to see him come on today in a, a game and uh, of this sort of magnitude against what again was still a really really good Manchester City side I'm hoping now that this gives him the confidence to try the same things and to try and actually influence the game in the same same manner I feel, and again, I say this as somebody who is an incredibly big fan of his, I feel that since he's come back from injury, he has been a little bit too conservative in his play. Callum, for me, is an exciting winger who goes at people, beats people, gets crosses in, cuts inside, has shots. You know, he, he is an exciting go-at-you kind of player. And I think since he was injured, and maybe a little bit to do with Tuchel and, and maybe the style of play, it's a little bit more predicated on keeping the ball, retaining possession, a little bit low risk. I think he's fallen into the trap of just sort of receiving possession and not really wanting to play his natural game. So today, I think what we saw for the goal, um, and, you know, uh, Marcus Alonso, absolute comedy in terms of the fact there, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, Callum could have side-footed that end and would have scored. Um, but, you know, everything that he did in the build-up to the goal, I think his, his over-involvement, I think, you know, is it's promising. And I do hope that that is rewarded with a start against, against Arsenal. Um, you know, he does give you a slightly different kind of skill set in those two number 10 positions in that he can run beyond, he can receive the ball to feet, he can drive, you know, take players on in deep, at wide, wherever it may be. Um, and yeah, as I said, I felt he felt really, really, um, you know, he's really, really positive when he came on. And yeah, as I said, but I think the main the main takeaway for me is that this this kind of Hudson-Odoi, and I think Tuchel was, you know, shouting about it after the game, this is the player that we want to see and that we need to see because this, this version of Callum can play and can play frequently for Chelsea. Um, but he's got to abandon some of these conservative tendencies that he's picked up a bit, I think, to be more frequently in the side. Um, but I hope we see him against Arsenal because, again, it, it's just it's fantastic seeing him and Reese play on the same side together. There's a natural chemistry, there's a, a telepathy, there's a uh, trust and there's a, an appreciation of one another as well. So I really, I would love to see both of them start against Arsenal. Um, but again, in terms of, you know, Callum's sort of cameos, it's the best that he's looked in in a long time in a Chelsea shirt. And I, I said, I hope that that continues. It'd be awesome to see him start against Arsenal because I think he can really attack either down that left hand or on the right hand side. I mean, especially if he's going up against Grant Chaka. I mean, like, give me a break. Like, he would absolutely have absolutely fast <laughs> against Arsenal. But let's talk a little bit about going forward for Chelsea because I know we can talk about days on for Champions League final. It's probably a different episode coming down the line, but we have Arsenal, Leicester. We have Leicester in the cup on next Saturday, which is already pretty crazy that it's, that's, that's that close. But this Arsenal game, I, I kind of want to focus in on because I'm not going to really be able to talk about it too much before beforehand. Arsenal are a club that Chelsea have had problems with, to say the, to say the least, over the past year and a half. We haven't won against the team in red since I think it was December 2019, which is absolutely absurd. Shouldn't be the case. And after that absolutely embarrassing loss to them at Unboxing Day, I mean, this team better wake up with so much intensity. They better play their hearts on the pitch because we know that Arsenal are probably going to burn it. And, and that's saying something because they haven't brought up the past 
five months of the season. But this is a game that we need to be marking our dominance on not just London, but the Premier League. Because you can beat Manchester City. You can beat Everton. You can beat Liverpool. You can beat Real Madrid in the Champions League. But if you come back and show that with a performance against Arsenal, especially the loss against an Arsenal team who are really struggling at the moment, that would be a very bad embarrassment for the club. And the fans would be sick ahead of an FA Cup final, which is a very huge game for this club. So the Arsenal game is looking more and more important for this team, especially giving them confidence heading into that Leicester game at Wembley on, on Saturday. So what are your thoughts quickly on the Arsenal game? Confidence-wise, probably very high. But at the same time, you know that Arsenal are definitely going to come and bring it. So we have to be on our 100% because if we're not 100%, we know what can happen before. But this is the one team in the Premier League. If we're going to beat anyone this season, 5-6-0, this has to be the game because I hate this team so much. It's because they've given me heartbreak over the past <laughs> year and a half in the FA Cup final on Boxing Day. Ruined my week. Ruined my day. And I'm watching the game with an Arsenal fan on Wednesday. So there, it should be very interesting. So what are the quick thoughts on Arsenal game? And, and of course, we can probably expose their defense. But what are you looking forward to? And who are the players that you're looking forward to to hopefully cause in the, team in, the team in red uh, some problems on Wednesday? What, uh, what fascinates me and probably frustrates me, actually, in equal measure, is that I think, yeah, I, I don't think this is, this is an overstatement. This, this is by far the worst Arsenal team that I've mm. ever seen in my lifetime. Um, you know, I grew up, I said my, my real football memory started about 97, 98. Um, from then, Arsenal had always been an exceptionally good team. Obviously, you've got the Henri Vieira era, you know, the Invincibles. They were, they, they were so good when I was younger. Um, and to see where they are now and how bad they are. I mean, they are really, really, and I'm not just saying this because it's Arsenal and I enjoy saying it, but they are a really, really bad team. But it's almost like the worse that they've got, the harder we find it to play against them. And it's this kind of weird inverse sort of you know scenario that's cropped up. Every time we play them, I expect us to absolutely smash them because they are not a good football team. And yet I feel that we have... Probably, certainly when you look at the cup final um, and, and maybe a few other performances recently, I think that we've turned up to these games thinking that we've already beaten them. I think there's always been an element of complacency, particularly in the cup final. Um, you know, I don't remember if you if you recall Frank Lampard criticising Cover and Jorginho for just, you know, going a goal up and then just passing five yards to each other for the rest of the game. Um, you know, I think there, there is a complacency that we've had against Arsenal that I, I, I think hopefully... Tuka will, will rectify before we play them in, in midweek. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of in terms of players I'd like to see play, I would like to see Tammy have a start. I think Tammy against Arsenal is always yes. a good bet. Um, Callum, I'd like to see play. I think Mason will come back into the side. Yeah. Uh, Reese again. Get get players in, the, I think, understand yeah. first and foremost the magnitude of the fixture. Yeah. Um, you know, and then sort of uh, kind of build it from there. I think Kante and maybe Jorginho will play in midfield. Like I, I want to, I want to beat Arsenal. I don't want to go there with the B team. You know, even if you rotate a tiny bit up front, I want to see some of our better players playing. Um, obviously, you keep an eye on the cup final, but you would expect. I think we, I'll be playing Arsenal on Tuesday. I think it is. Yeah. We've got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, we've got plenty of time before the cup final to rest players. Um, so maybe, maybe Callum and, and maybe Tammy come in as a bit of rotation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. This is the time to to stick the knife in and twist it with Arsenal. Um, you know, they have had an absolutely abysmal season, you know, knocked out of the Europa League. 
and you know, a side, side note, a funny thing is whenever we're in the Europa League, we win it without really trying. Like we don't even really try to win. And yet we win the, we win the tournament every time we're in it. I don't think we lost a game the last time we were in the tournament from the start under Sari. I don't think we actually lost in the whole entire tournament. Um, some clubs obviously find it very difficult and very challenging to get to the final. Um, but, you know, when, when we enter into that tournament, we obviously naturally find it pretty simple and straightforward. Um, but back to sort of the, the game in midweek. Um, yeah, this I think if, it, if we beat Arsenal, I think the top four is done, really. I mean, I, I can't see there being too much of a, a swing, um, you know, and then you, you hope to then go and knock the stuffing out of Leicester in the FA Cup. And then obviously we play them in the league. Um, that's sort of a nice little double header. But I think, you know, it, it's all about, for me at the moment, it's a little bit like um, any, any American sport coming up to a playoff period. You know, you could have been rubbish in the first quarter of the season. You get hot at the right time. You come into the playoffs. Um, you know, look at look at the Buccaneers this year. They didn't have the best record. I don't think I don't think they beat the Saints at all in in regular yeah, season. No. But they got they got hot at the right moment, and then they go and beat all the best quarterbacks on the way to winning it. You know, we have I think got that sort of hotness at the right time, um, and that requires momentum. And that that means you can't you can't dip in performances. You can't let a little loss creep in. You have to keep the momentum going. Um, and in which cases, you know, I think Tuesday takes on a little bit more of significance. Not only is it Arsenal, not only can we, you know, really sort of put the the cherry on top of their demise. Um, but for me, it's about momentum ahead of a cup final, momentum ahead of some big games that we have coming up. Um, and it's it's all about keeping that winning feeling going. Once you once you lose that winning feeling, once you lose that winning ability, it can be very hard to get back, especially when you're as you, as we kind of alluded to. We're riding the hot hand a little bit coming into the towards the end of the season. You don't want to lose on, you know, don't want to lose to Arsenal. You don't want to lose in the FA, FA Cup final. That can dent the, the confidence of the team. So, yeah, it has, you know, it has a lot of weight on it because it's Arsenal and because of what that means. But in the context of where we are in the season, I think, you know, winning and the momentum that it can generate, certainly ahead of two cup finals for me is massive. Reese James, do you remember back in December that soft penalty that he conceded against, I think it was Kieran uh, that really kickstarted yeah, that game. Yeah, it's embarrassing. You had, you had some really bad images from that game. The Saka goal, the Xhaka goal. I mean, that was a hard day for Chelsea fans. And you look back even against them yeah. at Stamford Bridge last January. I mean, a 2-2 draw where they're down to 10 men. And then, of course, the Arsenal goal of the season when, when they have a goal against, against <laughs> Chelsea. They, the yeah, one they keep showing game. everywhere. Yeah. When they when they draw against Chelsea, the, the game of the season for Arsenal. Um, and so I mean, hopefully Reese can avenge that. And actually, I guess it, it, we might be going a little bit long here, but I think for the Arsenal game previewing it real quick, just because I don't think I'm gonna get the chance to talk about it to, to my listeners uh, in midweek because I'm pretty busy with school. Do you mind giving a little bit of a lineup preview for your team and like who you want to see play in, in full in the starting eleven? Sure. Yeah. Mm. Off the off the top of my head, um, Mendy. Um, let's say uh, Rudiger, Zuma, and let's go Christians. No, I know Christians can be injured. Let's say Rudiger, Zuma, Aspi mm. as the back three. Uh, Reese James, Chilwell, Kante, Jorginho as the four in the middle or four in midfield. And um, I go with Mason, Callum, and Tammy to to mm. lead the line. And then Kai probably coming on as as, as the, the first uh, option there. I don't think that it's going to be the team that gets picked. I think it will be <laughs> one of Pulisic or Werner or Ziyech, but 
from my perspective, I would like to see, I'd like to try and go at them with, with that academy front line and see what they can do. Mm. How long has it been since we've seen Mason, Tammy, and Cullum in a starting eleven? I mean, that has to be over a year old, that front three. Um, very, very, yeah, long time ago at this point. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I think they have the right combination of of abilities and probably the right mentality and the right understanding of the game to go and terrorize Arsenal. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I would I'd like to see Tammy play. I, I think I rate him a lot higher than, than most people, and I think Callum Apio on the back of this cameo has hopefully earned a, a starting berth mm. as well. Um, wouldn't it surprise me again if we see Timo, Kai, and, and Christian or whoever. Um, but I probably I, I do expect Mason to start though. So Mason is probably the only one that I'm certain of that will probably start against Arsenal, and then pick pick two of, of whoever it may be. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd also like to see Ben Shewell come back into the side. And I talked a little bit about this after the game on someone else's channel. Is Ben Shewell sitting on his couch today at home? He has to go to Cobham with 100% of his effort once again tomorrow because Marcus Swans had a pretty good game today, which is why I think this team is so lovable right now because they're so confident, but they need to put hundred percent into every single second that they get, because they know they can just get pulled the next second, you know? So I think competition wise for this team is really good. Uh, Tammy Abraham, if he gets to start this game, that would be amazing because a, of course it's against Arsenal. He has a good record against Arsenal. He scored the only goal against them on boxing day, of course, scored the goal against them in the Emirates in the two to one comeback in 2019. But the Academy boys, I feel like will get up for this game. And Reese James, I think, will have a really nice game, especially coming off of what he did today against City. I like to see Mount, and that's the thing, because how do we fit all these players in is the problem if we're, if we're playing a back three. I like to see Zuma. Actually, scrap that. I, I'll, I'll go with what I think Tuka will pick. I'll go with what I think Tuka will pick. I think he'll play Reese James. I think he'll play Rudiger, definitely. I think he'll play Silva. And then I think he'll play Aspilicueta. I don't think he should play Aspilicueta because I think he's tired as hell right now, even though I think he did actually yeah. have a really good game against City Day, which I think we maybe shouldn't have brought, should have brought up earlier. But he's playing a lot of minutes right now. So, I mean, you, you do have to look forward to that Leicester game, but at the same time, we do have, we do have time. So I play so I think Tuco, I think Tuco will pick Silva, Rudiger, Aspilicueta, James Chiwell, Conte, I'd like to see Kovacic play, but I don't think he'll be ready. Jorginho. Mount. And then I think we're going to go with the front two. Of Kamatsu Adoy. And Kai Havertz. I want to see Hudson Adoy and Havertz put together. Because they had some really good interchange over the, over the past couple weeks. So I think I think that'll be what Tuka will pick. I think, I think Tammy will get some minutes in this game. I, don't, I just think he'll start. But I'm um, looking forward to that game, especially because it is Arsenal. We want to beat them so much. So looking before we wrap up the episode, tweets, we've gone for a little bit while. So thank you once again for joining tonight. Talk a little bit to my listeners about, or of course, the new Kids Road podcast, but also some of the other content they're doing for the guys over at London's Blue, including your uh, weekly newsletter and work. They can find you on uh, social media. Cool, Shane. Yeah, no, appreciate it. It's been, uh, it's been a good hour or so. It's uh, enjoyable as usual. Um, yeah, so on socials, Twitter, you can follow me at Joe Tweedy. In terms of the London is Glue stuff, I think it's Shane alluded to, I have a, a weekly newsletter that comes out on a Monday. It's usually a, a mixture of articles that I write and just some random kind of Chelsea bits that I find off the internet where you look at some academy players. We always delve into sort of a historical Chelsea figure, that sort of stuff, which is really good. Um, and in terms of the podcast, yeah, the latest or the second episode, I should say, of The King's Road has dropped. It's an interview between myself 
and uh, and Ruben Samut, who is uh, currently a, a very, very recent ex-Chelsea uh, player and also a Chelsea Academy graduate guy who is playing both uh, non-league football at the moment with a view to getting back into the Football League, um, but also somebody who is scouting for Chelsea's Academy and also at Cholton for the time being. So we touch upon pretty much everything from, you know, how you get scouted as a, as a five, six, seven-year-old by Chelsea, what they're looking for, um, and then the process of really going from six, seven years old to, you know, the under 18s, under 23s, going on loan, um, and, and, and kind of so there's some really interesting kind of points and, and sort of side conversations in there as well. First part is up this week. The second part will go live. I think it's on Tuesday. Um, so Tuesday sort of coming after this is dropped. And in the second half, there's a really interesting part there talking about Chelsea um, and how a potential Chelsea B team would fare in like League Two. So we had a little look at the Checker Trade Trophy, you know, Chelsea put a, an under 23 sides in there, how they did, how, how well they performed. Um, we took that concept and investigated it and interrogated it a bit more and uh, tried to see whether a Chelsea B team would be an interesting way to, to develop youngsters. So the second half mm. is really about bridging the gap between, you could say, uh, development football and adult football. So yeah, stick around for, for the second half as well. And in terms of stuff that's coming up, there's, there's lots on the table, but uh, I'm just brainstorming for, for the third episode at the moment. So yeah, as soon as I have a, an idea, I will let, uh, let people know on my socials what the, what the third one will contain. Well, I'm pointing everyone right now to go stop this episode and go take a listen to that first part because it's absolutely brilliant. Also, take a listen if you haven't yet to the first episode of the Kings Rope because he talk, Joe talks a lot about Chelsea's identity as a, as a whole. And especially, Joe has a funny way of, of talking about something and it happening very soon. Chaos and trophies definitely has <laughs> been occurring over the past couple of weeks before the whole Super League conundrum. But yeah, once again, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I point everyone to go check out his work fun and his boot because we are really good friends with those guys over there. They're awesome people and they're putting out some awesome content daily for Chelsea fans. So go listen to the podcast. Go read the newsletter because you won't miss a thing for Chelsea wise. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Laughter Matthew Harden podcast with our teaser episodes that I really enjoy editing before I release the podcast. You can find me on Twitter as you hook him with 13. Make sure, of course, go give Joe a Twitter follow. If you haven't already, um, please go give him a follow because he is really brilliant. Once again, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Until next time, Chelsea fans, hopefully we'll be talking soon about an Arsenal W because if we're not, I might not even record because I might be too sad to record. Um, Chelsea fans, <laughs> and then until next time, stay safe and up the chills.